Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. If any of you are not familiar with my Torah study, you have come on a happy, happy Parsha. You have come in the book of Leviticus to the Parsha Tazria. It's the double Parsha Tazria Metzora this morning. So um, traditionally, um, these are the laws dealing with uh, someone who has what we know as leprosy, although it's not leprosy, it's translated as leprosy. So um, welcome. So glad you could join for Torah study. So this Parsha has been um, kind of the, this is the one you dread a bar mitzvah kid getting like the most, is like having to work with Tazria uh, with a bar mitzvah kid. But for our purposes, we're going to look at it at a much more, of course, uh, intellectual level uh, and anthropologically. And it is actually fascinating. And I said to my colleague we, uh, that I study with, Rabbi Hannah Lehner, who's, in, who's now in Portland, by the way. She was in Colorado. Um, so she, we've been studying for maybe six or seven years now together every week. And we were talking about the Parsha, and I said, you know, it's always hard for me to teach this part of the Parsha, where it's all about diagnosis, and I said, this is really one of the toughest Parsha to, like, bring people into and have them relate in any way to. Um, But this year, thanks to COVID-19, I feel like, truly, it's not going to be hard to make a connection between the ways the Israelites were were terrified of Sara'at and like just now I caught myself looking out my kitchen window. We have a lemon tree out there. So sometimes you'll see someone who lives in our, in our complex at the lemon tree, but I saw two people with masks and gloves and then a guy with two kids who don't live here near those people. And I'm like, who are those people? They don't live here. And do they have on gloves? And did they touch the tree? Did they touch the tree? Did they touch the lemon? Did they touch a lemon that they didn't take? Right? And it's like, I was like, Amy, oh my gosh, calm down. What is, like, first of all, I understand the roots of xenophobia, right? Like, okay, they're not from our tribe. They, they do not reside with our tribe. So I don't know that they don't have something, <laughs> right? Like, well, of course, anybody in my complex could have COVID-19, and I wouldn't know if they were, right? So... Um, but I wouldn't freak out if it was someone I knew lived here touching the tree. But because it was someone who didn't live here touching three people who don't live here, three, um, touching the tree, it's like, oh, my God. So, like, first of all, understanding the roots of xenophobia, but also I totally, like, got a relationship immediately to what we're going to study this morning about, wow, like, we really do, you know, when it's something serious to us, then we and and we fear contagion or spread um it really it really impacts every aspect of social interaction and that's what we're looking at this morning the texts that we're going to look at this morning um are texts that deal with the state of ritual impurity which in itself is not problematic so those of you who have learned with me before know this those of you who haven't welcome to the world of tum'ah and tahara Ritual impurity and ritual purity. I want to move away from the language of pure and impure, even though it's technically true, because I think it puts word, it puts concepts in our uh, Western 
heads that are not helpful. We think dirty and clean, and that is not the case. There is no problem with ritual tum'ah, with ritual dysregularity. And that's how I'd like us to think about it, right? You're regular or you are irregular. And there are many things in life that cause us to be in dysregulation. So the ancient Israelites understood one set of things. We in the West might understand it differently. Like if someone's depressed, right, or someone just suffered a loss, a death, or whatever, which is same as in ancient Israel, by the way. Um, if someone, um, I mean, there's lots of things that we feel like put people in this category of non-normal, a not normal state, normal, not necessarily being good. Somebody who just got married, we might say, is in a state of dysregulation. They go on a honeymoon for that reason, right? They leave society, they leave their community in our Western tradition, and they go away to be alone together, right? That, because they're dysregular. They're not in a regular, they're not supposed to be in a state of normalcy. They're in a state of high, hopefully, uh, elation and happiness, and they want to take that time to focus that on each other and not have it interrupted by regular life, going to the grocery store and the dry cleaner and getting your flu shot. They, they don't want that. Right. And society supports them going away and being together so that they are excused from all of the regular stuff of everyday life. So we can think of many, many things that put people in that category in our society. It's random how we decide that it's cultural. There, there's no absolute values to this stuff. Right. It's all culturally defined. So we're going to look at how ancient Israel defined uh, what puts you in a state of dysregularity? And I was listening this week to a te uh, teaching by my meditation teacher, um, Rabbi Sheila Peltz Weinberg, who says th this Torah portion is all about the times we come into contact with things beyond our control. And th that upsets us, <laughs> right? Like that, that upsets the balance of feeling like I got this. Look at me trying a new recipe. Look at me. The laundry came out perfect. Look at me. Like, I did a great job teaching this morning. So, like, we like that. And when we come up against things that we absolutely cannot control, it, it, it upsets our, our sense of equilibrium and our confidence. And, um, and life is going to bring us those things, like it or not. And so she reminds us that that's what we're dealing with in this Parsha. And she says, who are the people who are called by Torah to, to address the person who's got this confrontation with what we can't control? Who's assigned to deal with them? The priests. And who are the priests? The priests are the children of Aaron. Aaron, who was said to be a lover, right? He, he loves humanity. He per loves peace and pursues it. He, he's a gentle, loving soul. That's who's assigned to deal with the people who are in dysregularity are, are the priests. So they are associated with holiness and, and the power that goes with access to that. And they are a loving presence. So they both diagnose um, and continue to check in on the person who's been diagnosed with Sarah. So I'm trying to give you all these things up front and then we'll look at the text. But I, this is a text that if you just read it can like really, you know, whatever. So I just want to give you some of this stuff up front. And, and note also that the priest is not there to treat the person. The priest is not there to fix it. That is not the goal. 
Treatment is not the goal. The goal is for the priest to check in on the person, make sure the person is okay, and to be ready to declare the person pure, right, once Tzara'at is finished and has run its course. And usually I have to do a lot of song and dance around explaining quarantining someone who's got Tzara'at, quarantining them outside the camp. Don't think I need to spend a lot of time and energy on, like, why they might have done that in the ancient world, right? If you're really afraid of the spread, not of the disease in this case necessarily, but of, of, what, of kind of the impurity that goes with it, if you're really afraid of what that could do in the camp, you, you have to, as a responsible society, you must quarantine the person. You don't forget about them. You know, they're, they're still brought food. I mean, they're still taken care of. The priest checks in on them. They get loving attention, but they have to be in quarantine. Okay. So the other thing that puts someone in dysregularity is birth, right? Birth is very scary. Uh, Anyone who's been there can attest to that. It is very scary for you and the baby when you're the one birthing. Um, So in the ancient world, think about how many women would have died in childbirth. Think about how many children they had. So their lifetime risk to dying in childbirth was so much bigger than ours. Infants also died at a hugely um, alarming rate, right? Sometimes in some places, 50%. So in the ancient world. So when you think about, you know, the danger to mother's life and the newborn's life, um, it's, it's a very scary time and you don't have a lot of control. This is another place you don't have control. And, um, and with, uh, with a woman giving birth, you're in two categories. One, the proximity to death and danger, which we've talked about being one theory, is that death and danger, that's the connection to dysregularity, right? The highest, the le- highest level of dysregularity is caused by touching a human corpse. So the proximity to death. So death and danger is one level. The other thing is that when she births, she bleeds from the vagina, and, and, and as we know, any kind of emissions from the genitals causes ritual dysregularity. So, and that means men with semen and women with, uh, with menstrual blood. And so, and, and it's stuff that's not controlled. Okay. So, so the bleeding just happens. And so that, so she's, she's kind of two, on two levels that there's something coming from the genitals in terms of bodily fluids and the fact that she has been very close to death um, herself and by birthing an infant that could die. So we're going to go to Leviticus 12. We're at the beginning of Parsha Tazria. So this is Safaria, y'all. If you ever want to look at Torah on your computer, you got it right there. The whole corpus of Jewish literature is in safaria.org. Okay. So Tazria, we're going to look at the at the text. All right, and Bert says it's best if I read. All right, by So God says to Moshe, "Speak to the people Israel, Lemor, saying, ki Tazria." See, there's the name of our parsha. A woman, and it's interesting that this word Tazria is used. Um, who 
who brings forth seed, essentially. This is what's said of the, the trees in, um, in creation. And that's one of the only other places we see this word. Otherwise, it's a different verb that's used. So when she brings forth uh, a, and she births, Zachar, and it's a male, Vitam'ashivat Yamim, her impurity um, is seven days. Kimenidat Dota Titma. So she is uh, in this state of dysregularity, just like at the time of her regular uh, monthly dysregularity, which is menstruation. And I can promise you, as somebody who has dis- had dysmenorrhea, that it is a state of dysregularity for sure, just in case we didn't know that. All right. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Hey, remember that. She's, un- she's unclean for seven days. Then on the eighth day, he's circumcised. Remember that as a package. This is very interesting. So read Ephros, pay attention. So 30 days right? 30 days and three days, she shall sit in the blood of her purification. We don't see this phrase anywhere else in Torah, which is very interesting. All right. So in the days of her purification, um, anything sacred, she shall not touch. And she shall not come to the sanctuary until have been fulfilled the days of her purification. This is fascinating, y'all. This is fascinating. Trust me. And if she, if she brings forth a female child, she is uh, to be dysregular for two weeks as during her menstruation. Right, two weeks is a, a week of blood and a week without having blood, and she shall remain in a state of blood purification for sixty-six days. All right, so we saw how long it was with a male, thirty-three days. Double it for a female to sixty-six days, and on the completion of her period of purification for either a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb in its first year for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. All right, we're going to get there. Don't worry. Don't worry. Right? And he shall offer, he shall bring it close before aleha that it makes expiation on her behalf. And she shall be pure from the flood, you know, the flow of her blood. This is the Torah regarding the person who births, a male or a female. If she does not have enough money to bring a sheep, she'll take two turtle doves or two pigeons for the same right set of offerings. Okay. Now, probably people are freaking out already. All right. Just hang tight. Hang tight. It's all right. It's going to be okay. 
So speak to the Israelite people. So now we're dealing with one of those moments we bump up against things that are out of our control. This is very dangerous. It's also one of the best things we can do is bring children into the world, particularly in ancient Israel. If you're wanting to build a new people and you're wanting to build a new religion and a new civilization, you need people. So this is absolutely not about something that's bad. This is the best thing you can do is bring a child into the world and risk all that that means. All right. So she's, so let's talk a little bit about this phrase, which is fascinating. Um, this phrase about, so, so the boy gets born. She is unclean for seven days. And then the boy is circumcised on the eighth day. There are people who want to suggest that the blood of circumcision affects a certain kind of purification. That would make sense then that she's impure longer if she births a girl, if the blood of circumcision has the possibility to in some way shorten the time or remove a little bit of the tum'ah. That's what, that's a theory. That's one theory. We got some other ones. Don't worry. I got, I got more than one for you. All right. So Demei Tahara, the blood of her purification. This makes very little sense, right? Because if blood and emissions from the body and like menstrual blood cause ritual impurity, then how can you call it the blood of purification? It makes no sense. And if blood purifies, which we know it does on the altar, how come this word isn't used of blood when you're talking about the blood that goes on the altar? Why isn't that called the blood of purification? We never see this term anywhere else but here. So we're going to go to my favorite set of commentary uh, this this year. As you know, I'm reading um, the women's uh the wisdom commentary series, a feminist commentary on the Bible. The, uh, the volume on Leviticus is written by Dr. Tamar Kamienkowski, um, a teacher at RRC and a biblical scholar. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit from her perspective about what, why she thinks this term uh, is, you know, why, what is up with this term? Okay. So she says purification, that is blood purification, is intended as an act or a process that moves one from impure to pure. If, however, we translate tahara as purity, a condition, rather than purification, a process, then the woman is in a state of blood purity or more literally blood of purity. The fact that the phrase for blood purity appears nowhere else in the Bible, not even to describe the blood used to purify the altar, is remarkable. So then she talks, uh, Tamara talks about the discharge that women experience after childbirth, that it goes through three stages, lochia rubra, lochia serosa, and lochia alba. The discharge after birth gradually shifts from a deep red to brown to yellow and ultimately to white. It may have been that the appearance of blood that seems to clear itself from red blood to white or clear may have led to the term blood of purity. Blood that transforms itself to another into another substance. No other blood changes its apparent composition. 
So this may have been a case of looking at this blood and seeing that it behaved differently. This discharge appeared differently than any other kind of blood in that it changes in three different stages. Um, note that when she brings her offerings, she's, when she's done with this blood business, as we saw in the Torah text, she's pure and she brings her offerings. There's no statement that she then bathes as you do when you come out of other state, other kinds of tum'ah, you bathe. And then you come into the, uh, the kahal, the community again, and can go to the sanctuary and do all of those things. She's not told to bathe, which means she's pure just by this process. This process is the process that makes her tahor, which is fascinating. All right. Um, the other thing that Kay Minkowski brings forward is that we have ancient texts that say when the lokia does not exit the body, women die. So this is, uh, this is the case of peritonitis, right, where the blood is trapped in the body, the woman becomes infected, the, the uterus is hard, uh, and there's no lokia, there's no flow. Therefore, and we have treatments in ancient literature for when a woman's lokia stops before it's supposed to, there's medications that they give to her to bring the flow back. So, Kamienkowski says, the blockage of the discharge was a sign of illness and possible death, while the regular flow of blood was a sign of health and of life renewed. And so she, uh, she's... She says that the woman is not supposed, doesn't need to ritually bathe. Her purification takes place internally as her lokia flows out of her body. She is engaged in a process of blood purity. Her own bodily functions transform her internally from ritual impurity to ritual purity. Ritual bathing, therefore, would be redundant. All right. I find that remarkable. So I want to see if anybody has anything to say. Any comments or questions? I'm just trying to figure out what all this means to us today. How, how it seems so incredibly distant and hard to understand. That's so funny. Wonder, it doesn't I, I, <laughs> I was wondering if you, if somehow you can relate it. And Alexandra has her hand up. Well. Um, so what I what I can say is having been someone who went through childbirth, um, mine was surgery that was ridiculously hard and awful. Um, but however one comes through childbirth, there is a huge sense of having touched the existential like curtain between this world and the next, right? A, that the danger to you, you're only concerned that that baby's healthy and anything could go wrong. So so you're just so close to that edge and that in itself is really life altering in the moment. And you become the parent. I don't care if it's for the first time or the seventh time you become a parent again and you've brought this person. You made this person like that. That's crazy. You made a person inside of you that didn't exist before. And here it is. Um, and so there's for me, like, I'm so connected to this idea of being in a state of otherness um, and certainly a connection to how your body is just so different, right? And so 
altered um, during the time of, of recovery from that. So, so for me, it's not that that big a stretch to, to think about. Okay, so how do we how do we tend to that? You know, we're not great at tending to that anymore, right? We want to help the mom, you know, with gifts and cute little baby outfits. Um, we don't do a good job as a society of actually addressing her needs, right? Giving her a nightmare, right? Having someone relieve her so she can sleep. Um, anyway, so that's just a few thoughts off the top of my head. I'm trying to get back to full screen. How uh, do I do that? Uh, we have uh, Alexandra and Judith and Robert with their hands up. All right, so you call on people because I can't see you. Alexandra. Hi, uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Or see me? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I missed a little bit. Sorry, my Zoom was going in and out. But I'm wondering why um, the notion of or the information regarding the mikvah and women's blood is in this uh, part of the, you know, in this portion, which talks about leprosy and quarantine. I understand that, you know, women, uh, men and women were separated when, you know, a woman was menstruating. And I, I find this really relevant today still, because I think that women are still considered in many, you know, cultures, even our own impure or dirty when they're, you know, menstruating and not given really the space um, or the, celebra the celebratory space. There's still a lot of negative um, connotations around that. Uh, okay, let's take a few more and then I'll try to speak to all of it. My feeling about that, that feeling of giving birth is that you're, I felt closer to God than ever because I was giving life. And it was almost like being one of Aaron's sons, getting too close to the holy. I, I felt in danger of being zapped because it was so close to the holy to give birth. Right. So you, you're saying you kind of relate to... Yes. Right, to, to this sense of being in a completely other state. Right. I remember feeling completely out of control, that right. my body over, and it did what it wanted to do, and there wasn't anything I could do uh, to mitigate uh, what was going on, right. um, and uh, felt that three times, and <laughs> then um, and then, and then uh, you know when it's there, when the baby's there. Um, I also had this feeling of, oh my goodness, I, I did this, you know, um, and so that's, the thing about being out of control was just astonishing to me, um, that I didn't have to really do anything, but my body did it for me. Yeah. Right. Strange. So that, that whatever was going to happen, it wasn't up to you. No. Nah. Right? Yeah. All right. So like Judith, you, you get, you know, how this is described as, you know, dysregularity and a sense, uh, according to my teacher, Rabbi Sheila Peltz-Weinberg, of being you know, out of control and, and all that that you know, brings all the anxiety and, you know, realization of how small we are, what that does to us. Isn't that motherhood in a nutshell? Yeah. yeah. 
think so. Which is which is I think why it's so compelling, right? It's why this this material remains for me when Bert's like, relate this please to life today. Uh, not hard for some of us. <laughs> so, yeah, I get it. Uh, right? Um, and surely, you know, those of you who have served as, as partners to people who have given birth must get that you don't have no control either. <laughs> Whatever illusion of control you thought you had in the home at all is gone. Right? All right. Um, so anybody else before I go back to the question yeah. of why the menstrual blood is here? This is uh, Bob. I, I'm not an OBGYN, but I play one at the hospital. Um, <laughs> Um, and and the commentary um, is is pretty much spot on with regard to the afterbirth, the lochia, the um, uh, delivering the placenta. You don't deliver the placenta, as we say in um, in, in medicine, you're in dreart. Um, right. Uh, it it uh, leads to infection um, right around. The different colors are also spot on. Because that's, that's, you know, describing coagulation uh, and how the, um, uh, the blood changes color in a steady state uh, when, um, you know, somebody who has stopped bleeding is there and, and white is, is or, or light color is, is sort of the, um, uh, the last thing as, as it separates. So uh, the, the description really should be looked at as spot on. Great. So I love that. So they're, so they're observing what, what everybody observes, like who's looking closely at what happens with uh, women who have given birth. Um, and so, so what I find fascinating about this is that the blood actually, like Tamar says, um, purifies the woman from the inside out. There's nothing that happens on the outside like ritual bathing, you know, or other things. Um, like, remember we have, you know, things dipped in blood and then it's dipped and put on the nose and the ear and the, nothing's done to her. The blood seems to be dame tahara, the blood of her purification. And that this is a process that only a woman's body does. And only after childbirth does it alleviate chum'ah with no bathing and no other ritual. It happens internally. Only blood after birth has the power to do this. So I want to go back to the question about menstruation uh, and say that we don't get here in the Torah text anything about her being unclean during her menstruation as the first time we're hearing that. It's referencing the fact that we already know she's impure during her menses. So it's not here. This is only the blood of someone who's given birth. So that was to Alexandra's question. This is not this is not the place we see that it is taught that she is ritually other during her period. Right? So that comes when we're talking about seminal emissions. Like so there's when a man has a wet dream or he has intercourse, he's unclean. He is in a state of ritual otherness. That's where we see the menstrual blood because it is, it is an emission from the genitals, that period. That, by definition, makes one in a state of ritual otherness. To your question, Alexandra, about how many cultures treat this as something, you know, dirty or whatever, 
Um, first of all, it is a mistranslation by Christians, by Christian scholars and Christian Bible scholars. It is a mistranslation and looking at impurity as being bad, dirty, unclean. But I think that's also about the cultures they come from, right? And it's also about how they view women. But men were just as unclean. You know, they, they were also put in, in a state of dysregularity if they had a night emission. So if they had a wet dream, they were impure too, right? So, um, so first of all, we have to not see purity as good and impurity as bad. There's nowhere in the Torah it says that. Bringing life into the world makes one ritually impure for a long time. That's not a bad thing. We think of it that way. It is we who have judged that and carried that forward in Western society uh, to use against women like so many other things we use against women. That is a misogynistic culture taking this text and warping it. It just simply is not there that there's anything wrong with ritual impurity. The highest form of ritual impurity is communicated by a corpse. We are commanded to bury the dead, right? If you touch a lizard, you are not in a state of ritual impurity. If you touch a human being who's dead, whoa, you are impure for a while because a human is more important than a lizard. Does that make sense? So, so because the human being communicates more ritual impurity is not because it's valued less than a lizard. It's because it's valued so much more. So it's really the definition of impurity or purity that has been skewed over time. Correct. Okay. Correct. That's what's been skewed is this idea that ritual impurity is bad. It's just other. Mm. Right? And it just means you're other. Would you say, I, I don't want to go on a honeymoon. I want to run errands. No. I want to stay with my state of otherness and do what that requires. All right. So other people want to raise the point, well, what is up with it so much longer for a girl than a boy? Okay. Right? Amy, Jody has a question. Jody. Hi. Hi. So um, my question is I want to address um, – the reading where it first says, if you give birth to a boy, you've got the blood pur purification stage for 33 days, but it's double that if you give birth to a female. Is there anything new about that, or is it just the way the women were considered? Having, having a daughter is not as good as having a son. See? See? Look where we go right away. <laughs> Look where we go right away. It's not as good. Why is it not as good? Uh, well, what, what from the text gives you the idea it's not as good? Uh, well, I don't know. I'm just kind of going with that China thing, you know, where <laughs> you want to give birth to one. But women have, in many um, societies, not been treated as well and considered second-class citizens, as Alexandra said. So my question is, why does the mother have to be separated for less time if she gives birth to a boy? Why is she okay to come back? And double time if she gives birth to a girl. So a, a, one of the things I just said is that the, the blood of circumcision might be seen to affect her oh. state, right? That's number yeah. one. Number two, um, Rabbi, uh, Art, uh, Rabbi Arthur Waskow, his partner, Philip Berman, 
wrote, there is a holiness of such complete concentration and narrow focus that we can't look out into the larger world. And there's the holiness where we are so at balance that we have a large view. She's going to argue that Tum'ah and Tahara, purity and impurity, are two states of holiness. Then I begin to understand a little bit more about these words Tahor and Tameh. I begin to think Tahor are those holy times in our lives when the focus is broad and when we can see the whole picture. And Tameh, impure, is that holy time when the focus is narrow and we can see only that immediate thing that's right before us. So now she goes on and she says, Out of my new understanding of Tahor and Tameh, I saw that perhaps the real question was not, why is the isolation with a girl so long, but why is the isolation with a boy child so short? Hmm. Well, I like that a lot better. Jody, what is she saying, Jody? She's saying you get to, having birthed a daughter is more special, and you get to spend time and that whole, um, you know, just being with her. And I like that much better than commentary where, where it says, oh, you're, you're uh, impurity after the birth of female in our green book, where it says you're rewarded by having a boy. You get to enter and go. But I like that much better what you just read. And so, and I think actually if we really try to step back from it, and I'm not trying to, you know me, I'm not an apologist for the text. I never right. an apologist. I just want to appreciate it, A, on its own terms. But B, I think if we really step back from our misogynist way of looking at everything, mm-hmm. I, I really think who wants to come back to real life right. after having a baby faster? Right. Who wants to rush back? right, to cleaning the floors, going to work, having a baby. So, so possibly what's going on is she's given the fullness of that time with a girl. It's understood. They're going to bond. They're going to go shopping and get their nails done together for the rest of the baby's life. They're going to, right, they're going to get their hair done. They're going to, what, what, they're going to do what women do together. They're going to cook. They're going to talk. They're going to birth other people's babies. They're going to take care of everybody. They're going to search for herbs and healing things. They're going to be together the rest of their lives. She's given a full amount of time to bond with that girl because they're going to be together. That bond is critically important. With a boy, he's not going to belong to her realm. Right. Men and women's realms were very different. The boy is going to belong to the father and the men. So... He's circumcised, and he moves into that realm more quickly. Well, right? I like that interpretation a lot. <laughs> so, and so, like, we don't – obviously, we don't know. We weren't there. Um, so we don't know exactly what, you know, this comes out of. But I think we rush to understand her returning to a state of regularity. We rush to see that as a good thing. And therefore, right. she's dysregular longer with a girl. It's a bad thing. But what if it's not? Right. What if it's about her being present and being given the time to nurse and cuddle and be present with that baby because it's a girl for longer? All right, Rita, raise your hand. I love it. Good. You probably said you probably said this during one of the previous years, but I seem to recall that um, 
sort of nourishing the daughter is important because the daughter is going to be responsible for the next generation. So you want to make sure she stays alive mm -hmm. and, and healthy. Long right. And so the value that she has to the community of someone who's going to bring forth more members of the community. The other folks who want to look at it from the proximity to death, the Tum'ah ritual otherness is defined by a, a closeness, an encounter with death. Um, some of them suggest she's birthing a being who is going to come into contact with death, right, by having children. So... She's in a state of dysregularity because she has just brought into the world a being who's going to deal with it every month. And then every time she has a child, you know, so she's, she's carrying something and bringing it forward. That's going to also experience Tum'ah a lot. And so that that's maybe why it's longer for her contact. The mothers with Tum'ah is longer or, or her her, the the uh, strength of the dysregularity is maybe bigger with a girl, so so the process takes longer because the girl itself herself is going to face it over the course of her lifetime many 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 times. Amy Carroll has a comment. I yes, just, I just wonder if the if this was seen or if the the, uh, the people at the time were feminist. If, if this society was led by women, um, if the birthing process wouldn't be seen as more of um, miraculous, as more, um, you know, uh, uh, that she's done something uh, and heralded for, rather than, you know, uh, the way this seems to be handling it. Um, it seems to me that it's the Torah, I'm afraid to say, you know, is, is seen through the eyes of men and written by men. And by, and by a patriarchal society, right? By an unapologetic patriarchal society. So what I hear, what I'm just going to answer, Carol, what I want to answer your question, whether you meant it or not, which is if we listen closely and carefully for the voice of the tradition that, that comes before the ancient Israelites, I think absolutely here there is a sense of the power of, of birthing a human being. That that's why it causes such a disruption because it is, it, it's not like, okay, she's going to drop a baby in the field, everybody let's eat. Yeah. Right? It was understood that this was in a miraculous and powerful terrifying right experience and and a wonderful thing all wrapped up which most things that are really fantastic are also terrifying if we take them seriously right um and so yes i think we can listen for the ancient near eastern the mesopotamian women focused women centered tradition that would have made birthing an incredibly powerful moment and that it makes sense, even if you translate it through the eyes of the patriarchy, it makes sense that it's disruptive of normal life. And we don't have to judge that as a bad thing. Right? All right, 13. God speaks to Moshe and Aharon and says, Adam ki ve'or bisaro o safachat. Okay, here we go. When a person has on the skin of their body a swelling, a rash, or a discoloration, 
and it develops into a scaly affection on the skin of their body. It shall re be reported to Aharon the priest or one of his sons, the priests. Well, actually, I want to argue here, and I, I would take you through it a little bit longer if we had time, but we don't. Um, I want to argue, Tamar Kamienkowski argues here, because women could also get sara'at, there's no way that this word means sons. It must mean children. Because who's going to diagnose a woman as having sara'at if it's on her upper inner thigh? It ain't going to be a male priest, right? So it has to be that there were children of Aharon, children of the priests, who were female. Uh, and maybe the male was was uh, given the absolute diagnosis authority, but that that they would have been a woman would have been examined only by a woman. So the priest shall examine the affection on the skin of the body. If hair in the affected patch has turned white and the affection appears to be deeper than the skin of the body, it is a leprous infection. When the priest sees it, he shall pronounce the person unclean. But if it is a white discoloration on the, on the skin of the body, which does not appear to be deeper than the skin and the hair, and it is not turned white, the priest will isolate the affected person for seven days. Quarantine to see. They've got the symptoms of COVID-19. Is it COVID-19? We can't afford a test. We can't get one. We're going to put them in quarantine for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest will examine the person, and if the affection has remained unchanged in color and the disease has not spread, the priest shall isolate them for another seven days. They're not getting worse. So we'll take another seven days just to be safe. Two weeks. Two weeks, exactly. On the seventh day, the priest shall examine the person again. If the affection has faded and is not spread on the skin, the priest will pronounce the person clean. It is a rash. The person will wash their clothes and they shall be clean. All right? This can happen to women too. That's why I'm purposefully changing the gender. Hebrew defaults to male gender. But it could be a, this could be happening to a female. But if the rash should spread on the skin after the person has presented themselves to the priest and been pronounced clean, they shall present themselves again to the priest. Right? So you're clear. You've been you've been isolated for 14 days, you feel better, your symptoms have not gotten worse, they're actually getting better, so you're pronounced non-COVID. Then you come out and, uh-oh, you start coughing again and your fever spikes. You got to go back to the doctor, right? If the priest sees that the rash has spread, the priest shall pronounce the person unclean. It is tzara'atz. Sarat can be any one of these conditions, by the way. So leprosy, as we know, is not a correct translation. That's Hansen's disease. That is a different disease. But we leave the translation as leprosy because it communicates what we need to communicate in terms of how seriously they took this. So the way people go, ooh, freaked out about leprosy, you know, 100 years ago, uh, that is the sense that people had about Sarat. But it could come from a boil, a burn, a rash, um, all of these skin conditions, are they, they can be a manifestation of tzara'at. So it's many skin conditions, impetigo, like all kinds of things. All right. when, a person, when a person has a scaly affection, it's reported to the priest. If the priest finds on the skin a white swelling, which has turned some hair white with a patch of undiscolored flesh in the swelling, it is chronic tzara'at on the skin. The priest shall, priest shall pronounce him unclean. 
He need not isolate him, for he is unclean. If the eruption spreads out over the skin, so that it covers all the skin of the affected person from head to foot, wherever the priest can see, if the priest sees that the eruption has covered the whole body, he shall pronounce the affected person clean. He is clean, for he has turned all white. So we can talk about what that means if that interests you. But as soon as undiscovered flesh appears, it shall be unclean. This goes on and 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 on. Okay. I'm not going to go through the whole text. It goes on and on and on and on. And usually people get very impatient. Like, what is with these people? Why do we need this many pages in the Torah devoted to what might be Sarat with all the different possible manifestations of that? So what I would say is how many people, and I'm not saying you're saying that. I'm saying, even I say it, oh my God, here we go. The white hair, the discoloration, the pus, the yellow. If It's like, ah, already with this. I'm sick after four verses of it. And it goes on for a whole chapter. Why? What is that? What is going on? And then I think to myself, okay, how many times have you had a conversation similar to this recently? I don't know. I was coughing, but it was a dry cough. Like it wasn't a wet cough. Like when I have bronchitis, it was dry. I heard that's a symptom of COVID. And I think I had a fever. I didn't take my temperature, but I did feel feverish. And now that I think about it, I was around my uncle last week and he, his eyes were red. And like, I've heard that that's a symptom. And like he sneezed a few times and he doesn't have allergies. Have you had conversations like this that go on and on and on, looking at every symptom, wondering if it could be evidence of COVID-19? I have. Maybe it's because I'm a rabbi. I've had a lot of these conversations where everyone's obsessed with talking about every tiny detail to see, because what they're concerned about is, might it be COVID? Why do we care if it's a dry cough or a wet cough? It's a cough. We care because a COVID-19 cough tends to be dry. That's what we're told. And then we want to know, we look and read or listen obsessively to what are the things that indicate COVID-19 versus allergies, versus regular bronchitis, versus a cold. We listen and we're obsessed. So even though we don't write it down, right, in, in, in Hebrew with lovely commentary, we write it down in here. We are, we are keeping track of every single symptom and every single comment about every symptom that could mean COVID-19. And if that's diagnosed, people are quarantined. So it made me a little more sympathetic this year to how much detail is here about diagnosing, I almost said COVID, diagnosing Sarat because that was their in that in their world, that was what they were most afraid of was Sarat and and the contagion that it would bring to the community. So the responsible thing to do was make sure you catch it, diagnose it correctly, and to be on the safe side, you quarantine somebody for a week. And if you're still not sure at the end of that week, it's two weeks, Mehmet, two weeks that you are outside the camp because we can't risk the contamination. And that's the only responsible thing to do. And it is the priest who check and make sure and see what's happening. It is not like the person is like disappeared from the community. It's exactly what we're experiencing in some ways 
today. So um, I want to um, I want to close with a teaching. Uh, Rabbi Sheila Pilt Weinberg also talked about this this week. So I want to make sure I teach in her name, which reminded me. So I checked the spot. I met you know the Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger and found uh, my own notes on on the text she was quoting. Uh, and the spot I met makes a play on words. It tells us uh, about Sarat that it's dealing with the or the skin. Like this stuff manifests on the skin. Or in Hebrew, skin is ayin vav resh. For those of you who know any Hebrew, doesn't matter whether you do or not, but remember that ayin vav resh is or. What is the word for light? Or aleph vav resh. So they're spelled differently, like S-E-E and S-E-A, C and C. You have to know in context it, there's no difference in the sound, or and or. And so you have to know in context which or we're dealing with. So the spot I met has a beautiful teaching. And he says, in the beginning, it was all light, right? In the beginning, or God speaks, and what, what, is, what happens? What is the first thing that happens? Or. And it is not the sun, right? Because the sun is created on day three. So this or is a different kind of or. And so the Sfatimet teaches on day one, the only thing that exists in the universe is God and light and not light from the sun, a different light. That's all there is. And when human beings are made, God lovingly puts skin around that light. So God put or over the or so that we are light in skins. And that sometimes the or of the skin can become dark, you know, can become ill, it can become sick. But this skin is also porous, and it allows some of the or the light to come through. So within each person's or skin lies another self that's only or, it's only light. And even though something may happen on our or on our flesh, there's another or that can shine through. That medical experts are treating the or, the skin, but Torah's teaching us that the priest didn't just take care of the or, the priest isn't there to cure it. What is the priest doing by tending to this person? The priest is tending to the person's other or, to their light. That they are making sure the person understands, even in quarantine, they are still beings of or. They are still beings of light. And that that is our obligation. We can't do a lot. Most of us are not doctors. We can't do a lot for the or, right? When people suffer some kind of um, illness or disruption of the regularity of their flesh, we can't really do much about that. But the spot of says we're to be a nation of priests. We're, that's right. We're, our goal is to be a nation of priests, and if that's true, then it's our obligation and it's our sacred duty and our sacred honor to tend to people whose or has been disrupted with some kind of illness or condition. It is what we do is we tend to their or, we tend to their light, especially when they're sick. Um, we have to look past the flesh, like look past just that to the or that's underneath. And that each one of us has the obligation to serve as a Kohen, to serve, we, if we're to be a, a nation of priests, then we are to be a people 
who understand and treat those who are suffering in any way from something that d makes them dysregular, our, our job is to bring them to Kedusha, is to bring them towards uh, a sense of holiness and connection to the holy by our presence, by being there with them, uh, and to tend to their or, to tend to their inner light, um, because that we can do for each other. You don't got to be no specialist um, to tend to someone's or and to have them feel respected and seen and heard and, and, and treasured and, um, and felt as valuable, no matter what's happening for them uh, physically. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.